The chapter we're going to study tonight carries with it not a small amount of ethical controversy and tension. In fact, uh, there are some in um, history. One, uh, I'll give an example. Thomas Paine, who wrote the book Common Sense, lived in the 1700s. And Thomas Paine says, in Numbers 31, Moses is a villainous figure. Well, that's a strong statement. And uh, an atheist named Richard Dawkins writes in his book, The God Delusion, that Numbers 31 is objectionable on multiple levels. And he says, quote, Moses is not a great role model for moralists. And what they have in mind is the fact that Moses and the Israelites hear from the Lord about vengeance to be applied to the Midianite people. And the result of this is the execution of judgment and the gathering together of plunder and not just materials, but even the inclusion and gathering and, um, and protecting of individuals for the future. And uh, there is much to think through in a chapter like this. I think the value of pressing through an Old Testament chapter such as this, it allows us to think collectively through the ethical considerations that arise so that we can affirm together the righteousness of the Lord and the wisdom of God over the people of Israel. It is indeed the case for Christian apologetics that the defense of the Christian faith will often involve people saying, well, I read something in the Old Testament that maybe involved this or that, and it seemed objectionable to me that God would do this or judge in this manner. And so it's helpful for us as believers who want to hold the whole Bible together anyway, as I know you do, to think specifically about chapters like this and how it can help us in our conversations with others who might bring up issues such as this. Certainly antagonists of the Christian faith have written about chapters like this. So how should we think about it? Well, we want to remind ourselves, first of all, when and where we are in the story. The when is answered by this, the end of the Israelite wandering period. That's when. The 40 years have come to an end. It's approximately 1406 BC. And the Israelites, in terms of the where, the where, they are on the other side of the Jordan in the plains of Moab, right across from what would be Jericho across the Jordan River. It will be the first place there is defeat in the book of Joshua. This story assumes in Numbers 31 some earlier knowledge from the book of Numbers. It expects us to remember that in Numbers chapters 22 through 24, God's plans were to bless Israel and not even Balaam, the international seer and prophet, could undermine that. But then in Numbers 25, the experience of Israel takes a turn because Moabite and Midianite um, uh, conspiracy comes together to tempt the Israelites with Midianite women who seduce them into sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry. Chapter 31 is about that earlier episode being now something that provokes the judgment of Yahweh, and the passage tonight has that in view. So, we also want to recognize they're not in the promised land yet. When God grants victory over a non-Israelite people that has uh, acted in a certain way to combat or curse the Israelites or to seduce them into lawlessness, then these are people who have aligned themselves against the purposes and covenant of God. And God said to Abraham, those who curse you, I will curse. 
This is a working out in chapter 31 of the earlier promise that God will avenge his people against his enemies. And this foreshadows the conquest. This is not the defeat of all the Canaanite territories in Joshua. But it does suggest confidence that when the crossing of the Jordan River comes, the God who overthrew the Midianites will keep his word in every other respect. So we start tonight looking at verses 1 to 4. In verses 1 to 4, there is a command to execute vengeance on Midian. In verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. This must mean something happened to the people of Israel that now warrants a proper administration of judgment vengeance even, that that is what is uh, applied. This is righteous vengeance. God is just and holy. And therefore, when God calls them to do this, God is not directing them in unrighteousness, and he would not decree anything that for himself would be unjust. That's not the God of Scripture. Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Now, who are these people? Well, the Midianites don't exactly have a stable territory. We've seen Midianites from time to time. They appeared in the book of Exodus. Moses was living in the land of Midianites in Exodus 2 after he left Egypt. And for 40 years he shepherded sheep. And there was a particular woman he married named Zipporah. We've seen Midianites before. We haven't always seen Midianites antagonistic against Israel. But you see there were some roving bands of Midianites in the area of Moab that did work against the Israelites and the covenant blessing and promises of God. When it says avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites, it seems to be a very targeted or local band of Midianites that are the focus. The reason we'd want to affirm that is because earlier Midianites we saw elsewhere geographically. The Israelites are in a particular location, so they're going to address the the Midianites in that location. We're also going to see later in the Old Testament, there are Midianites after this chapter. This is a local and focused judgment and execution of vengeance. And then we're told in verse 2, afterward, God says to Moses, you shall be gathered to your people. This will be Moses' last military incursion. There's nothing beyond this that will involve any sort of battle scene that's part of the life of Moses. This is it. We will see the death of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, not Numbers. But uh, the remainder of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy occur within a very small period of time. Moses is preparing then for the end. He's approximately 120 years old. um, And God says, you will be gathered to your people. In verse 3, Moses spoke to the people and he said, arm men from among you for the war. There had been a census conducted in Numbers 26, a census of warriors who would engage in the Canaanite conquest. That is not the amount of people going in in this situation. Rather, there is an arming of and a setting apart of a more elite group, a focused group of warriors, a thousand from every tribe. That's what will turn out to be the case. Arm men from among you for the war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. This is not the Israelites simply wanting retaliation. This is 
in response to a direct divine command from the Lord. And in verse 4, you shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to war. Well, how many uh, tribes of Israel do we have then encamped around the tabernacle and heading to the promised land? We think about those 12 tribes. Then if there's a thousand from each tribe, we see in verses 5 through 12, the warfare will include that many thousand. Uh, The warfare with Midian and its various uh, spoils and plunder of war is verses 5 to 12. So there there were provided out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from each tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Notice here the effort to obey in every specific way. Every tribe that's encamped and heading toward the promised land to receive allotment of territory, a thousand from each tribe. It's the right number from the right amount of tribes, all added together, obeying the Lord, 12,000 people. In verse 6, Moses sent them to the war, a thousand from each tribe, together with Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. Now, Phinehas is a Levite. It is not clear that Phinehas here is to have a fighting role in the war itself. We must remember that in the census of Numbers 1 and in the census of Numbers 26, when warriors are counted, the Levites are not in the thick of the war. But they do associate with the sacred vessels of the tabernacle, like the going forth of the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the blasting of sacred trumpets for war. And it seems that Phineas will have a role that's fitted with this. He goes with the vessels of the sanctuary and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. The reason that uh, his father Eliezer, the high priest, is not going to do this is likely because warfare will deal with dead bodies as a result. And that will require uh, a period of uncleanness for any Levitical priest. The high priest must maintain cleanness and not contact with the dead. It's more fitting then that in a warfare situation, Phineas bear the trumpet and others with the Ark of the Covenant into the place of war. These trumpets are the same ones from Numbers chapter 10, the trumpets of the blast, as they could be translated. They signal to direct troops for battle. These trumpets were blown in Numbers 10. I think that's what's in view here. In verse 7, they warred against Midian, meaning that those localized in the Moabite territory who were Midianites in that that case and in that area, they were engaged in war. And as the Lord commanded Moses, it happened, and they killed every male. Now, what we have in mind here are the Midianite soldiers. So the men who die are the Midianite soldiers engaged with the Israelites in warfare. These Midianites would be uh, part of that warfare context. And we also know in verse 8, various clan leaders of the Midianites were subdued. In verse 8, they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. The Midianites who dwelled in that region of Moab had several clan leaders, these kings, these rulers, and they were all put to death. This is no doubt a strategic part to disrupt any further leadership among the Midianites against the Israelites. How serious was Numbers 25? If we go back to Numbers 25, when the judgment of the Lord broke out upon the Israelites, 24,000 Israelites perished under the judgment of the Lord. 
So what the Midianites were complicit in and what the Israelites joined in was so abominable with the sexual immorality and idolatry that both Israelites were judged and now Midianites are judged. This is not some kind of category of genocide. Just as all Israelites weren't uh, judged in Numbers 25, neither are all Midianites on the globe judged in Numbers 31. These are particular sinning individuals who are executed by the Lord's judgment. They also killed Balaam. You see that name there in verse 8? They killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with a sword. Well, we know this man. We spent a number of weeks in 2022 at the end of the year thinking about Balaam and his oracles. And Balak, king of Moab, had sent Balaam home. But apparently, apparently Balaam didn't go home. Apparently Balaam was remaining in this region, who knows doing what. And what we learn later in this chapter is that Balaam was part of the uh, outrageous actions that the Israelites uh, were uh, committing. He was behind the plot of those Midianites seducing the Israelites. Uh, More on that in a bit. So they killed Balaam. They put to death this one who had defied the Lord's purpose and covenant and opposed God's people. In verse 9, the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones, and they took as plunder all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. So if the male soldiers of the Midianites are put to death, there are women, there are children, there are animals that are left. In the ancient world, that's a very devastating situation to result. The Israelites are not to mistreat or, um, or um, uh, defame or abuse any particular captors of war. We see these kinds of instructions for Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy about the Israelite activities. The Israelites are to do as the Lord and through Moses has commanded. Now, in this case, they kill the male Midianites and they spare women and children and plunder cattle, flocks, and goods. We will see in a bit, there's a lot of flocks and cattle and goods that remain. What do they do in the cities where they're traveling around engaging the Midianite forces? Well, in verse 10, all their cities in the places where they lived and all their encampments, they burned with fire. There, there is a real thoroughness to administrating, administering the um, judgment of the Lord. It says in verse 11, they took all the spoil and plunder, both of man and of beast, and then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spoil to Moses and to Eliezer the priest. And to the congregation of the people of Israel, at the camp, on the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, at Jericho. At Jericho means across from, in this case. They're in the plains of Moab, near Jericho, which is right across the river. So in the plains of Moab, they come to Moses with the remainder of what has survived. Now, verses 5 through 12 talk about that warfare. 12,000 Israelite soldiers go in and they execute the judgment of the Lord. I want you to notice in verses 13 to 20, Moses' command now about remaining individuals here. In verse 13, Moses and Eliezer the priest and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. As the people are coming in to talk with Moses and the leaders... These are people who have just been in the throes of warfare. They are contaminated ritually with uncleanness. 
And that is not to be brought to the tabernacle of the Lord. So if Moses and the others who are ritually clean, if they're going to talk to these Israelite forces, where must they go? They must leave the camp of Israel. They have to go away from the tabernacle. They have to go out to meet these people. That's the result. In verse 14, Moses was angry. He was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Now, this is interesting. Because the the male soldiers of Midian have been subdued and villages have been overcome and plunder has been gathered, both materials and animals and brought toward the Israelite encampment. Why is Moses angry? I wonder if the answer surprises you. In verse 15, Moses said, have you let all the women live? He says in verse 16, behold. These, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. Talking there about Numbers 25. And so the plague came upon the congregation of the Lord. If you go back to Numbers 25, it was not Midianite soldiers who came in and tempted the Israelites. It was the Midianite women who came to seduce them with idolatry and immorality. Now, the Israelites are responsible for what they did. The Lord brought judgment into the camp. There was both pestilence and judgment of the Lord. 24,000 Israelites died. It is the largest judgment of a group of Israelites that you find from Exodus through Deuteronomy. It's an astounding result. But Moses says, well, the guilty parties are not just Midianite soldiers who would oppose Israel. You, you realize those who came to defy the Lord and to act against the purposes of his people were not just males. He says these on Balaam's advice. We're not told how Moses comes to know this, but Balaam was integral. So here's what I think we should imagine. If you back up in the storyline of Numbers, Balaam has only been able to bless the people, right? King Balak has said time after time again, I brought you to curse the people and all you've done is bless the people. He's so frustrated. Is he basically said to Balaam, write, write the, the, the uh, amount in the, in the blank spot of the check that you want. I will give you whatever you ask for to curse the people. And after Balaam is unable to defy the word of the Lord by, by somehow cursing the people, he is only able to bless them. What if what happens next, using this verse in chapter 31, what if it goes like this? Balaam says, now I can't curse the people. I can't get Yahweh with my pronouncements to bring curse upon the people. But I can tell you what we could devise that would bring God's judgment against them. If you want God's judgment on the people, I will not be the one to be able to pronounce it. But you send in some Midianite women. You send them into the camp of Israel. They'll turn from Yahweh. They'll engage in immorality. They'll engage in idolatry. And that will provoke their God. And he will judge them. So in verse 16, Balaam's advice was that the women commit this treachery against the Lord. And one of the uh, moral effects of sexual immorality that you see in Leviticus and earlier in the book of Exodus is egregious fornicating and immoral activity, especially coinciding with idolatry, ends with the death penalty. In verse 17, 
he says, Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. Now, in verse 18, we read, But all the young girls who have not known man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Now, verses 17 and 18 are the more difficult verses of this chapter to think through. What is it exactly Moses is expecting them to do? What seems to be the case is that in verse, in verse 17, thinking about the women first, these are guilty women. These are not people who are disconnected uh, from families and, and living lives of, uh, of singleness and virginity until they you know, meet a, a husband and all, all the rest that would happen in the ancient world or in the life of the Israelites. Instead, these are guilty women who have committed treachery and not just the male soldiers, but these women, every one of them are to be executed. Now, we would have questions as readers to think, well, then how is that to be determined? What are the, those are the questions that would come to my mind, at least, and perhaps to yours. Like, how is that then to be delineated? How are those women to be identified? And we don't get any of that information. All we get is that Moses recognizes it is not just male Midianites who would be a problem here with the purposes of God and who have defied him. They have committed, these women have, moral treachery in complicitness with the Israelites. And not just that, they have families where they are raising future male soldiers of Midian. And here, these women and these males are under, we could use the word, the ban or the judgment of God. And therefore, in the Midianite judgment that the Lord administers through Moses and the Israelites, both the males and those complicit with the family and these future soldiers are all subdued by the judgment of God. This seems to be the logic of the text. We know this is not some free-for-all against any Midianite because of what verse 18 says, the young girls who have not known man by lying with him keep alive for yourselves. If the judgment of the Lord occurs in this region of Moab against these Midianites, it is going to leave in a very destitute situation many women who are virgins in the ancient Near East. Now what are they going to do? They have no families, and they don't have a future that in the ancient world would be in any way easy. What the instruction is, is to incorporate them into the community of Israel. They would then, Lord willing, leave their idolatry, leave the practices of the, the land that would lead to dishonorable immorality against the Lord, and to be included among the camp of Israel to be those taught of God and worshipers of Yahweh, and I think ultimately marrying into the Israelite community. Um, this seems to be the way of looking out for the future of those that remain. So you have a very strong and thorough judgment against Midianite forces and those committing treachery in the land of Moab. It is not comprehensive of every Midianite because of what verse 18 says. In verse 19, in camp outside the camp, seven days, whoever of you has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. What this verse is using is language from Numbers 19, the ashes of the red heifer ritual. In Numbers 19, anyone who encountered 
slain people or dead bodies, those corpses. They were unclean and there were particular acts ritually for the third day and seventh day in order to be restored. Well, here you have a context of warfare. What are you assuming among all the elite Israelite forces, these 12,000 soldiers who've been sent out? You are assuming that they will be ritually defiled. And that means they must apply the instructions of God that he has earlier given in chapter 19 of Numbers. So that's where this language in verse 19 comes from. Purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. Not just the people. Look in verse 20. You shall purify every garment, every article of skin, all work of goat's hair, every article of wood. This is to indicate that not just people... But even things associated with these people are not to be brought into the Israelite camp without being properly cleansed. So, all the way through verse 20, we see now Moses' command extending beyond the male soldiers of Midian. In verses 21 through 24, here are the instructions about purifying garments and the plunder. In verse 21, then Eliezer the priest, he's the head high priest, right? He says to the, to the men in the army who had gone to battle, this is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire, and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, it shall also be purified with the water for impurity. Whatever can't stand the fire, you shall pass through water. You shall wash your clothes on the seventh day, and you shall be clean. And afterward, you may come into the camp. And so they have to be very careful here what they're burning, all right? So they're not saying um, burn the gold as well as your garments. I mean, you, you can pass gold through the fire, but your clothes aren't going to make it. You know what I'm saying? Like, at that point, you need to know what you need to pass through fire and what only needs to be dealt with with water. Water for the garments. Other than that, though, you have various materials that are part of this cleansing ritual. This is symbolic. It's to demonstrate the dominion of Yahweh over the people and possessions. And these have now been incorporated into the camp of Israel for God's sacred purposes. They are to be cleansed and set apart and purified, both people and things. Now, chapter 31 doesn't end there. We've seen the setup to the battle. We've seen the announcement of warfare. We've seen how many are incorporated under the administration of God's righteous judgment. And we also see here very specific instructions about how the spoils of war are to be divided. In verses 25 through 31, God gives some instructions about dividing the plunder. He says in verse 25, the Lord says to Moses, take the count of the plunder that was taken. That, that says to me, you need to categorize everything and add it all up. How much are we really dealing with of every particular thing? Both of man and of beast, you and Eliezer the priest, and the heads of the father's houses of the congregation, and divide the plunder in two parts between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. Here's what we're being prepared for. You get all this plunder and the spoils of war. Well, who's it going to go to? Two groups. Two groups initially. The first group is the group of those who go to battle. These are the warriors. These are the 12,000 who have been set apart. It says two parts. You're going to divide it. Meaning half. Half of all of the plunder goes to 12,000 individuals. 
And then the other half of the plunder goes to the rest of the Israelites. And so I have here on the board, for the warriors, those are the 12,000, and then for the people, that's the you know, moving over and uh, jumping the category there, for people, that is the Israelite community. And notice there the numbers are the same. So half is going to go to the warriors, the rest is going to go to the Israelite congregation. But it's not that simple. In verse 28, you're going to take a tax here called a levy for the Lord, a tribute from the men of war who go out to battle, one out of 500, meaning the fraction translated to a percentage point, it should be 0.02%. No, 0.2% is correct. 0.2% or 0.002 or 0.2% is the amount to be taken from the warrior's total. And this levy or this tax will be a tribute to the Lord, one out of 500. So you take the fraction 1,500 or 0.00 or 0.02 or just 0.2%. It all equals the same thing. You take that from the totals, that goes to the Lord. Take it to Eliezer the priest as a contribution in verse 29. Now, how does this get taken to the Lord? If you take 0.2% of all the warrior's plunder, the way I think it works out is it goes to the priest's. Taking it to the Lord is a way of contributing it to the priesthood. Why would the priests need anything? Well, they don't have any territory in the inheritance to come, and they don't go to war to receive any plunder. They have a very unique job. Just like earlier tithes from Leviticus were meant to support the priesthood, something by analogy seems to be happening with this. That from the warriors, there will be taken 0.2% of everything they receive, and it goes to the priests. But that's not all. Look in verse 30. From the people of Israel's half, because, you know, there's a two, two halves, right? From the people of Israel's half, you shall take one drawn out of every 50. So one fiftieth, or 2%. 2%. You shall take one fiftieth, or 2% of the, uh, of the people, the oxen, the donkeys, the flocks, the cattle, give them to the Levites who keep guard over the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses and Eliezer the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. What we're noticing is the Levites are singled out here because not all Levites are priests, are they? The Levites aren't supposed to go to war. The, Israel, the Levites don't have future inheritance territories like the other tribes. The Levites are dependent on what the people also give. So from the warriors, a percentage comes out for the priests. From the people's half, a percentage comes out for the Levites. And in this way, Levites and priests are provided for. I know it seems complicated. Hopefully the, the chart up here helps to a degree. But here's how the math works out. Look in verse 32. The plunder remaining of the spoils that the army took 675,000 sheep. Well, if we divide that in half, then 337,500 go for the warriors and 337,500 go for the people. And then you just take a percentage out of either of those. And so after the sheep, they total up all the cattle. And on the far left column, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 persons, women who had not known a man by lying with him. 
And in verse 36, the half, the portion of those who had gone out in the army, numbers 337,500 sheep. How did they get from 675,000 sheep to 337,500? They just cut it in half. That's it, right? That means the same number goes for the people of Israel as a whole. And now with those halved, they can exact the proper percentage from both. If you look in verse um, 41, I'm sorry, verse 36, the half, the portion of those who had gone out in the army, numbered 337,500 sheep. The Lord's tribute of the sheep was 675. That means for the priests, the Lord's tribute or the priests. How did they get 675? 0.2% of it. One five hundredth of the total. The cattle, 36,000, of which the Lord's tribute, that becomes 72. You're just multiplying 0.2% by the half. The donkeys, 30,500, the Lord's tribute becomes 61. The person, 16,000, the Lord's tribute, 32. Moses gave the tribute, verse 41, which was the contribution for the Lord to Eleazar the priest, as the Lord commanded Moses. So I don't know what kind of uh, uh, charts and graphs they're, they're dealing with to make sure they get all these numbers right. Maybe something like this, on stone, etched with chisel. But trying to, trying to, in all seriousness, apply the proper percentage to the right group. And then in verse 41, I'm sorry, verse 42. From the people's half, the people of Israel's half, which Moses separated from that of the men who had served in the army, the congregation's half was 337,500 sheep. That's their half. 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, 16,000 persons. From the Israelites' half, Moses took one of every 50, or 2%, both of persons and beasts, and gave them to the Levites who kept guard over the tabernacle of the Lord, that is, he commanded Moses. And um, and this means the result uh, would look like what you see on all of these particular categories. And um, in verse verse, um, 47... One of every 50, and earlier, one of every 500 are the fractions to keep in mind. In verse 48, in verse 48, then the officers who were over the thousands of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds, came near to Moses. This is something different. This is not on the chart here. This seems to be prompted by an amazing fact that we're going to read in verse 49. These commanders, these officers, they say to Moses, your servants have counted the men of war who are under our command. There is not a man missing from us. Now I want you to let that sit on your mind for a moment. I want you to consider how miraculous that is. They sent in 12,000 Israelites to administer the vengeance of the Lord on many different Midianites. We don't know how far they had to travel, how long they had to travel. We don't know how intense the battles became. Those details are not reported. But however long and however hot the warfare, there's not one Israelite who died. Which is astounding. You wouldn't expect that result. Instead, you would expect that in warfare, there would be casualties on both sides. Which leads the reader to look at verse 49 and marvel 
at the preserving power of God where not one Israelite was lost to a Midianite in war. There is not a man missing. Now, how do they know that? They counted. Now, earlier in Exodus, if they were to engage in a census of people, a proper offering is to be administered. So they are going to give a thanksgiving offering to the Lord in light of what Exodus chapter 30, verses 12 to 16 say, that there is a a kind of tax or fulfillment of sacrifice when there is a census taken. And they have just admitted to Moses, we counted the men of war. In light of what Exodus says, they're now going to bring a proper offering in thanksgiving to God. In verse 50, we brought the Lord's offering, what each man found. Articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, earrings, beads, to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. I think what verse 50 is telling us that they brought is they are bringing what hasn't been earlier demanded in detail. If you look earlier in chapter 31, no one's telling you specifically about how many armlets to bring or how many earrings and beads to offer. These officers recognize what the word of God would have as fitting at this moment having taken a census. They bring an offering to God recognizing not one Israelite is missing from the forces, and they're going to give this as a gift to God. They're bringing the Lord's offering. In verse 51, Moses and Eliezer the priest received from them the gold, all crafted articles, and all the gold of the contribution that they presented to the Lord from the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of hundreds. It was 16,750 shekels worth. 16,750 shekels worth. People have done some equations here to put it into pounds, if we could imagine how much the armlets and the beads and the earrings might weigh. And it has been estimated that the total of material offered to the uh, tabernacle here would be exceeding 400 pounds, perhaps exceeding up to upwards of 600 pounds. The range here is extraordinary. And now a lot of that would depend on the size of the beads and the size of the earrings. So there is a, some wiggle room in a window, right? But we're talking hundreds and hundreds of pounds where they are bringing this, recognizing that a census and gratitude unto the Lord requires it. In verse 54, so Moses and Eliezer the priest received the gold from the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and brought it to the tent of meeting as a memorial for the people of Israel before the Lord. You know, the majority of the narrative of this chapter has nothing to do with, uh, with uh, warfare. The majority of this chapter, if you get past uh, verse 20, when the uh, execution of judgment is happening, there is instructions about purification and counting the plunder, which takes the majority of the words. The minority of the words of the chapter are devoted to the actual act of the warfare and what's leading up to that. But the aftermath of purification is instructive for us because the Israelites are not done with warfare. This is the beginning. And the new generation of Israelites is not like the old generation. You know, the old generation in Numbers 14 God said that you're going to die in the desert over these next 40 years. And they decided, well, let's just go ahead and fight the Amalekites and we're going to engage in warfare and try to go into the land. Well, there were Israelites who perished one after another at the end of Numbers 14. It was a disaster. And it represented the faithlessness and tragedy of what was true of that older generation. 
Now contrast that with what we read of the new generation rising up, which Joshua will lead. Not one Israelite died. The Midianites were successfully subdued. And this foreshadows the effectiveness of the conquest that's coming in the land. They can trust the Lord. And the enemies of Yahweh should tremble before them, especially those who committed treachery in Numbers 25 at Balaam's advice. They were put to death by God's own decree. This helps us recognize here the Israelites are outside the land and this foreshadows and ought to bolster their hope and trust in God so that they will not be like the earlier generation that disbelieved. That they will think to themselves, we can trust the Lord. We will receive the land because God will keep His promises. God can be trusted to be faithful. His judgments will be true. And therefore, when He says the land will be inherited by the descendants of Abraham, we can believe Him. Here they are in the land of Moab getting a signpost truth of that same reality. If they were following where the sign of chapter 31 was pointing, it would be pointing toward entering across the Jordan River at the direction of God with full confidence that God will fight for them. When God says that his judgments are to be administered in chapter 31, I think we recognize that in the Israelite uh, conquest of these Midianite villages, that is the vengeance of the Lord working out through the means or instrument of the 12,000 from the 12 tribes. And in this case, we see here the dominion and conquest of wickedness. And we see the preparation that this chapter has for the promised land in Joshua. And we see how that story in the fullness of God's word It stirs within the people of God the longing for God to subdue all wickedness and evil that has risen against him and against his people. What the Midianite conquest here demonstrates and the victory of Israel by the decree and hand of God is that God, by his own power and in his own perfect timing, will overcome evil and wickedness. These Midianites had been around for a while, and this wasn't even all the Midianites. Those that survived should fear the Lord. Those that were taken from their realms of idolatry and immorality should trust the living God and what he did through this particular group of 12,000 people. And it should stir within the reader and the larger storyline of Scripture the reality and hope that the Lord Jesus will return to subdue the wicked. That he will come to bring his people into new heavens and new earth. What the promised land foreshadows. What all of these earlier victories were a foretaste of. When we read stories like this, we recognize, well, this is old covenant Israel. And they are thinking about crossing the Jordan River to a particular geopolitical territory. These are specific uh, thorns in Israel's side in these Midianites that had an earlier episode in Numbers 25. There's a lot of very local and specific covenantal uh, overtones to the story. But the relevance of this story is when we zoom out of it and we see in the larger plan of God the problem of evil and the righteousness of God and the wickedness of sin and the treachery of coming against the Lord. Chapter 31 tells us God's words to Abraham were true. I will bless those who bless you, but those who curse you, I will curse. What are the Midianite people experiencing in Numbers 31? 
The curse of the judgment of the Lord. What should compel readers of a chapter like this is to see, let us flee to God our refuge, for He is a righteous judge over the wicked. And they should tremble before Him, having defied Him in all of His righteous ways and wisdom. And in here, and in this story, we see the need to flee to God, lest we perish in His judgment. Let us be those then who seek to bless Yahweh and in that sense exalt Him and praise and glorify Him. In that way, we will be those known and loved and cared for by God and not perish under His wrath. This is one more historical episode in the larger storyline of Scripture of God's righteous and holy judgment upon the unrighteousness and wickedness of sin. Let's pray.